0: Welcome back to Libya Matters. This is a special one. It gives you, our lovely listeners, a front row ticket to a very special event. In mid-June, Lawyers for Justice in Libya organized an event at the Conduit Club in London. The Conduit is a platform that brings together social entrepreneurs, investors, business leaders, policymakers, and civil society organizations interested in tackling some of the most pressing challenges we face today. After a 42-year dictatorship and an eight-year conflict that is still far from being resolved, the situation in Libya is most challenging, and we thought an engaged and candid conversation would help remind people why Libya matters and to think of ways to make a difference. Luckily, The Conduit's co-founder, Paul Van Zael, agreed, and together with the incredible team at The Conduit helped us organize an exceptional event. From the impact on Libyan society to the role of international actors to the forgotten victims, the event explored some of the most relevant, yet often overlooked, aspects of the conflict from a human perspective. We did this with the help of renowned author Hisham Matar, who normally prefers writing award-winning and powerful novels or lecturing his students to sitting on an event panel, but made an exception for this event, and wonderful human rights expert and the first special representative to the Secretary General for Libya, and the first head of the United Nations Support Mission in Libya, Ian Martin, who managed to attend and share his immense expertise despite his many intercontinental commitments and flights. Despite the best efforts of the UK Home Office, we even managed to bring in the voice of Libyan human rights activist. Hamza to the gathering, and ended the night with a live performance by the award-winning spoken word artist George the Poet. So listen on and enjoy this very special episode of Libya Matters from our event, Libya, the Forgotten Revolution. We're really pleased to be doing tonight. Um, and before we start off, um, I'm going to hand over to Paul Van Zell, who is the co-founder of The 100, for a few words.
1: So I'm, I'm really going to say just a few things, um, because this, uh, there is some... Um, special uh, emotional resonances for me about this event. Um, Firstly, I come, as a South African, I come from a country which um, had a revolution, was arguably forgotten for a while, is possibly being resuscitated as we speak. And I think um, I'm very, very interested in how countries that have experienced um, enormous oppression seek to reconcile with, well, reckon with that oppression in very difficult geopolitical circumstances. And I think um, there are many reasons why we would want to, um, from the perspective of the conduit, put a particular focus on Libya. Um, You could argue that it's a really consequential country on the continent. You could argue that the um, question of migration and refugees will have consequence not just for the region, but for Europe and elsewhere. You could uh, talk about the geopolitics of um, a a range of proxy wars being fought uh, in and around Libya. Um, You could talk about um, natural resources and their effects both within the country and beyond. Um, And then I think most fundamentally, you could talk about um, civilian populations Um, Ordinary people um, finding themselves in the crosshairs of um, not just past oppression, but a very, very difficult and complicated moment. Um, And so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, On a personal note, um, uh, Hisham uh, is one of my dearest, 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 dearest friends. Um, So I'm declaring that in advance. Um, uh, And you're in for an enormous treat um, um, listening to him. Ian Martin um, used to be my boss um, at the International Center for Transitional Justice. Um, Poor man having me as a a direct report. Um, But a really, really important person in the human rights movement globally, um, Secretary General of Amnesty International, a very important figure in, in the human rights movement within the UN, and a person who has always been distinguished by being very uncomplicated by his commitment to human rights um, in, in complicated settings. So we're very, very lucky to have um, him here as well. And Elham um, does really important work, and um, difficult work in a place that risks sometimes being forgotten, but which is a place of real consequence, and it takes real courage to continue to fight and draw attention to these places. So I commend um, her to all of you and listen carefully to what she does to what the organization does um, very, very important work. Um, I don't know everybody else on the panel really well, but they're awesome um, and you'll hear um, and and that's Elham's job to introduce you so so over to you.
0: Thank you all for joining us um, this evening. Uh, thank you Paul for for hosting us and for the very, very kind uh, words that you said, and thank you, Emmanuel, and the entire Conduit team for your utter patience in this process. You have been a a saint with all our requests and questions. I want to take a brief moment to just um, say a little bit about uh, what Lawyers for Justice in Libya, which is the organization I represent, does. Um, And then I was going to set the context of what we're discussing, but I do not uh, intend to take much of your time myself. So I work for for Lawyers for Justice in Libya, and our work is focused to promote justice and the rule of law in Libya, primarily through a human rights-based approach and a very victim-centered approach, uh, which makes our work, uh, and especially those of my colleagues and um, uh, affiliates that we have in Libya, very dangerous. Um, We use advocacy, we use outreach, but we also use strategic litigation and accountability mechanisms and quite a bit of research. So if you want to know any more about our work, I won't take up your time now, but you'll see some very elegant people with blue pins on that you might want to be able to talk to afterwards in the reception. If you want to know any more about what what we do or if you want to take the conversation about Libya forward, we'd be very happy to do that. It is beyond a privilege for me to be sitting on a panel with this. This is basically my dream dinner party situation. Um, And so I will not treat it as that. I will remember that you guys are here and will try to involve you as much as I can. But I have to declare upfront as well that this is literally the what's-your-dream-dinner-party situation. Um, Before I introduce them more and hand over the microphone, I just wanted to do a little bit of context about why this event came about and when I sat down with with Paul to to think about what would be useful to the conduit membership where we got to. So the last two-plus months, in Libya, we've seen a heightened uh, level of fighting with the um, approach on Tripoli by General Khalifa Haftar and his army. That has been sort of the the, the focus of the narrative on Libya with that um, has reemerged a little bit on the media, and we saw some renewed interest in Libya, which is welcome, but the narrative itself has been rather problematic. We've seen a lot of the language around a strong man or the stabilization, or a security-first approach. And, and I, I don't think that this, um, these events are the catalyst for that narrative, but actually the events are the result of that narrative that we've seen in Libya, where all the solutions that have been proposed for the last eight years, and actually for the 40, four decades before that, are very much about a security-first narrative, and very much about a strongman solution. And the danger we see is that that comes at the cost of human rights, that that comes at the cost of rule of law and also comes at the cost of genuine long-term institution-building reform and a proper sort of a a genuine and long-term stabilization for Libya. And why does that matter? Um, Because of all the things that actually Paul mentioned uh, about the implications that Libya has, that this event has on people in Libya, but also on people around Libya. Um, You know, we've seen a further... Example of proxy wars or remote warfare with the new actors in this field, um, the Gulf states, Turkey, Egypt, uh, and I think it's worth taking a moment to think about that and, and how you deal with that um, dynamic with with the sort of the same concept of proxy wars but new people. We um, have also seen the coast to human life of people in Libya, but also um, to the migrants going through Libya that are trying to go through Libya or, in fact, being returned to Libya, and also. What makes this, I think, an interesting sort of case study is the fact that Libya is a situation where there are no legitimate actors. All the parties that are involved in the conflict at the moment are not legitimately, legally constituted under domestic law. And so that raises a lot of questions on what we do as an international community when we engage with an internationally recognized body that actually is not legally constituted. And also, I think it's an interesting test case for the ability or perhaps inability of UN institutions to deal with these issues. Um, So I'm hoping that today will be a a nuanced, I know that today will be a nuanced, uh, reflective, and a very sort of forward-looking conversation about sustainable and long-term solutions to the Libyan situation. So not too much to ask of you guys. Um, So on the panel, you will see that Rawia is not here. Uh, Rawia is one of our incredible activists in Libya. She has been working relentlessly for the last two months documenting all the violations (laughs) that she could get to within driving distance of and speaking to some people that have been through really horrendous stuff. She had her visa declined by the Home Office. Um, And if you want to talk to me about my feelings about that, I am very happy to do it. Um, But the the reasons that were given were not only gendered, but also phenomenally culturally patronizing I would say. So the, the, I'll quote that it said, you are, you know, you are 37 years old with no dependents. You live with your parents. You have no assets. B- basically therefore your life in Libya as a woman is, so, is so, so dismal that of course you're coming to the UK for asylum. And I find that, you know, it's, it's really problematic that that's actually the way that people are addressing um, legitimate applications. So she has sent me what she wants me to say and I will read it out. Uh, so that she is not absent from this conversation, even if she's not here. Um, So I'll hand over to you, um, Hisham, if I may. Thank you. Hello, good
2: evening. Um, I'm really (laughs) delighted to be here on several uh, uh, counts. Um, This is a very special place for me, the place that I came to uh, before it was the conduit, and walked through the building with Paul and him describing to me this is where we're going to do this, and this is where we're going to do that. And um, it was such an exciting moment. And then to see it come alive, not only as a building, but much more importantly as a, as a place. Uh, and it's really a fantastic achievement. Um, and I would like to take this moment to, to celebrate and congratulate Paul, uh, uh, Nick Hamilton, and the entire team of conduit, I think it's really a phenomenal thing. Uh, and walking into the building today, I thought I sort of had to remind myself that it hasn't been quite a year yet, right, <laughs> since this uh, place opened its doors. Uh, and that's quite something, given everything that has happened in that time here. Um, I am hugely honoured to be sharing the podium with with Ian Martin, and very much looking forward to hearing uh, his insights. Um, thank you, Ilham, and Uh, the lawyers um, for justice in Libya um, uh, for putting this together. And I'm very sorry that uh, Marwa Hamza can't be here Um, and look forward to hearing uh, what she said. Um, So it's very bad practice to quote yourself. right? (laughs) You mustn't, like, never do that. It's not a good thing. It's even worse practice to quote someone quoting you. uh, But that's exactly what I'm going to do. Because as it happened today, I got an email from somebody I don't know um, who was writing very flatteringly about my work. This is terribly... This is the worst way to start, (laughs) right? But she quoted something to me that went right to um, my thoughts about this evening. He said... um, you wrote this piece in 2011, so September 2011, just as the Arab Spring was, was unfolding. Um, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to read you those lines. Um, the Arab Spring is a powerful and compelling response, not only to an age of tyranny, but also to the remnant chains of imperial influence. The final outcome, if there ever is such a thing as a final outcome in history, of our revolutions remains unclear. We might not succeed in building a better future, but no one can question the authenticity of our desire or how much we are prepared to sacrifice for the opportunity to gain self-determination, dignity, and justice." What occurred to me when she wrote me those words is how I would probably say exactly the same thing now. Um, That, in other words, I think, The moment is very different, but the sentiment is similar. And the difference in the moment is what um, struck me. Um, One of the ways I would describe it is that I think the present moment, and I'm speaking specifically about Libya, but I think a lot of what um, I will say here would go for Egypt, uh, would go for Syria, would go for Yemen, would go for Tunisia, not to add Uh, to that habit of generalizing all of these revolutions, because I think each one is distinct and circumstances are are different. But in this regard, I think they do share something uh, genuine, which is that this moment right now seems to me an invitation into complexity. Uh, It's a moment where we have lost those uh, exuberant... um, uh, uh, simplifications that we had to engage with immediately at the revolution. I think most revolutions do that, you know? You need the passion. You need uh, to, to, uh, to rally people. Uh, and to do that, sometimes revolutions do oversimplify, not only the problems and the causes, but also their projects and their aims. So we had to simplify our revolution under a very basic slogan, down with the regime. No, that's what you heard in Egypt. That's what you heard in, in, in Damascus. That's what you heard in Tripoli and Benghazi. And I think what I'm noticing now uh, in, the, in, the, in the countries that I know well, right, in Egypt and in Libya, what I'm noticing is that those activists that were part of that movement have divided into two camps uh, at, at the risk of generalizing. One that is really bitterly feeling the sense of defeat, um, and I think, sometimes I think that actually one of the purposes of living a life is where words turn from being symbols of meaning, things that you look up in a dictionary, to things that you really know. You, know, you don't know what it's like to fall in love until you fall in love. You don't know what it's like to have your heart broken. That phrase, broken heart, means nothing until it really has happened. And I think the word defeat, I feel that with it, given what's happening now. And there is certainly a good group of people who gave a lot of energy and a lot of passion to these revolutions, who are feeling and understanding the depth and power um, of and misery of defeat. But I also see another group um, that is approaching this moment with a maturity to sort of say, well, hold on, okay, we did need that sense of abandon and that sense of enthusiasm, but now perhaps we need to approach it with greater complexity and greater intelligence and a much more involvement into the historical um, patterns that have led to this present moment, together with how the powers that we were trying to, to, uh, to, uh, to demolish uh, 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 instigate and express their, their influence in, in society. Um, and this very much has happened in Libya, I think. Um, so by an invitation of complexity with Libya, we have to really understand um, what it is that we were trying to fight, um, that you have power structures uh, in Libya that run much deeper than the state or much deeper than the apparent structures of the state. But you also have something else that I think complicates it and aggravates uh, all the troubles in Libya, which is that it's a country that for a very long time has been um, uh, the subject of the will of others, of other countries, of other powers, of neighbors also, right? Uh, And this you see very much uh, uh, now. There's a an irony in Libyan history in that you have had two really main uh, Libyan leaders since independence. You had King Idris, and then you had Gaddafi. And the irony is that King Idris was famous for the brevity of his speeches, and Gaddafi was infamous for the lengths of his speeches. And King Idris, when he inaugurated the first oil well in 1963, gave a very brief speech in which he said, and you have to... Remember that in 1963, Libya was a very poor country, right? A country that couldn't afford to open an academy, right? It had to borrow or take donations in the form of teachers from Egypt, right? Uh, So it's a country that really wanted oil, (laughs) really wanted that oil. Yet, when the first oil well was discovered, King Idris said, I don't know if this is going to be a blessing or a curse. Let's hope it will be a blessing. And I think history shows that that question is still suspended. It's not clear to me whether it's a blessing or a curse. It has excited the parasitic instincts of um, superpowers, but also, again, of neighbors. So by invitation to complexity, I mean that too. In a sense, this event here today, we are talking about Libya, but I think we're also talking about how Britain and America and Europe and Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and Egypt and Russia are thinking about Libya and how they are uh, putting their weight uh, consciously or subconsciously, right, intentionally or not, behind certain forces in Libya, more often times intentionally. And so the other thing that I think, the other other thing I mean by an invitation to complexity is that um, Libyans, perhaps not unlike um, um, uh, uh, others, but maybe a little bit more than others, I like to think, um, are not particularly good at uh, looking at the past, Not particularly good at engaging with the traumas of their history. Very particular traumas you have in Libya, because you have the the Italian colonial experience was particularly violent. you know, Italy, to subdue the resistance resistance, killed forty five percent of the population of Cyrenaica, a fact that is very little known in the world. Um, and so we have so much you know, uh, anguish from the past And then we had the Gaddafi experience Public executions in the 1980s uh, People left hanging in the streets Until their bodies rotted So as that be, according to the di- dictatorship A sign of their ill character right? And traffic diverted So as you drove by those things. All of this is very difficult to talk about in Libya People don't talk about it For obvious reasons all countries are susceptible to national psychosis, and we've had our, 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 our share of that. Um, yet, of course, as Paul Van would tell you, but uh, and and the the experience of South Africa, not dealing with the past guarantees the repetition of the past. No, um, and and so this is this is another thing by what I mean about an invitation into complexity. Um, moving forward I think um, there's a a wonderful recent film that I saw you have to understand it's a very strange experience for a Libyan to be sitting in a cinema in London watching a Libyan film fantastic experience a film also made by women Libyan women about Libyan women incredible Uh, it's called Freedom Fields I invite you to see it Uh, and it's about a group of uh, Libyan footballers, the women's football um, uh, team, the national women's football team in Libya, and their experience in the wake of the revolution. It's a very clever film because it tells you a lot about this time in Libya. The reason I mention it is because uh, at the end of the film, the screening that I went to, Nazih al-Arabi, the director of the film, uh, was in conversation. Uh, And this is a film that took her five years to make, you know, filming very intimately uh, across the country, in different parts of the country. And so very reasonably, her interlocutor said, how were you able to make this film? How possible was it, given how difficult the situation is in Libya, given that you're a woman and so on? And she said something that I think goes to the heart of one of the characteristics of Libya, a characteristic that both makes certain things Possible and makes the same things, same things that you want, impossible. It's a kind of anarchic sense. You know, we have an incredible energy that expresses itself in anarchy. Anarchy in the French sense, ah, huh? not in the English sense. <laughs> um, and she said, for every person in Libya who is trying to stop you from doing something, there's someone else who's trying to help you do it. I think that's very true. I think there's something about that that goes to the heart of it. Um, the other thing that gives me a sense of optimism is a very simple fact that is easily overlooked in the situation. Libya, with its um, rudimentary, almost non-existent state structures, imagine that, huh? country without a state. A country without a police force. A country without an army. And everybody, almost everybody, is armed, right? Yet, of course, we have... More than our fair share of killings and robberies and, and abductions, but much less than you would think. Most people and most property is safe. That I think is an extraordinary fact and says something about the continuing cohesion, no, and dynamism of Libyan society. Not something to take for granted, and it's something that is, you know, if the situation continues, might not uh, might not uh, remain. I started my comments with a, 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 an embarrassing gesture of quoting myself. I'm going to end them uh, with an equally embarrassing gesture of quoting myself again. Um, during the days of the revolution, before Qaddafi was captured and brutally killed in the way that he was, which in my opinion um, lost us a really golden opportunity of how we can engage in national reconciliation and justice. But before that happened, I wrote an article in which I said, this is terrible, what I'm doing, but in which I said that it will be far easier to defeat Gaddafi in the battlefield, to capture him in the battlefield. Far more difficult to defeat and capture Qaddafi inside us. Because you have to understand, if you're interested in Libya today and interested in possible solutions, you have to understand the, the nature, the very unique nature of the Libyan dictatorship. It wasn't just only eccentric and absurdist. It was incredibly interested in, into the private moment. So it wasn't enough to put somebody in prison, but you put him in prison and issue a decree so as his wife, forcing his wife to to divorce, divorce him. No? So this kind of complexity, wanting to get into the private moment, wanting to exact, not only a register of oppression, but also a register of humiliation, you know? This is a very, very complex uh, state uh, in Libya, and it has marked us very deeply, psychologically and emotionally, I believe, much more than we like to think, not only because it lasted for 42 years, not only because we are extremely young as a country, meaning that most of the people, 85% of the people, the moment Gaddafi was killed, 85% of Libyans were born after he had come into power. so his project was so complete on us that's also why it was amazing what we did it's incredible that we rose up against him um, uh, given that amount of time and power that he had over us so defeating that is a thing very important that's why I think people like uh, 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 Ilham and her colleagues, particularly the colleagues in Libya who are doing the research but also of course the colleagues here are incredibly important And the amount of young Libyan researchers that are doing this off their own back, not even knowing how to do it, or the young Libyan footballers, if you watch Freedom Fields. What's wonderful about all of this is that it really shows you that the vibrant spirit of freedom, of wanting dignity and justice in Libya is very, very strong and needs to be supported. The things that don't help is silence. It's very difficult to get the Libya story into the news because there's nothing really, you can't do it quickly. It's complicated. It's like now, I'm sure I've gone over my eight minutes. Very complicated, (laughs) no, to to, to do the Libyan story quickly. And therefore, this engagement with it that is subtle and complex is is really, really required. And anything you can do to support that uh, would be just wonderful. Again, not only for Libya, and not only because Libyans, like everybody else, is your brothers and sisters, but also because, more likely than not, the country that you're from is somehow involved in this story.
0: I just wanted to, uh, if I may, add a, an anecdote about um, the sort of proliferance of arms uh, in Libya. One of the first workshops we did on training civil society in Libya was, um, in was in September 2011, so even before Gaddafi was um, was removed. Um, and at the end of this. Uh, workshop, there was this one participant who was very quiet and said nothing throughout the whole uh, workshop. And at the very end of it, he came down very ceremoniously, had shaved his beard. And he said that he had put on, he'd grown his beard um, throughout the war, and he said he would not remove it until he felt liberated. And then at the end of this workshop, he felt that he found a way to do Libya without the war, and therefore shaved his beard. We then all went home to Tripoli, because this was actually held in Tunisia. And he called me a few days later um, to say, can I can I come visit you? I have a, a thank you gift. I'm like, you know, you really don't need to. He's from a different town. It's, it's in town, which is up in the mountains, a very long journey. And then he insisted on coming and I said, fine. And then he called me a few hours later and he was like, I I can't get into the city center because they won't let me bring in the gift. And so I part of me with some of my sort of Western education, I thought, oh gosh, did he bring me a camel? Or um and and I'm like, this is really inappropriate. And then Finally, I pushed him, and he said, "Okay, so, okay, so my gift is a Kalashnikov." And I said, "Excuse me?" And he was just like, "Well, because you know, you—I feel that the Kalashnikov liberated us in the war, and you're liberating me, so I want to hand it over to you." And I, my reaction was, "Well, you know, I, I asked you to disarm, but I didn't mean to." Me, um, my father was completely convinced that my human rights NGO was actually a militia, and I was quietly arming it. Um, <laughs> Needless to say, we finally found a a more suitable place for him to to get rid of that. But I think it was, it it gives a statement to sort of how emotional people were were to their arms, but also to the battle and this kind of link with that. But also this idea that um, just also that the arms are so available that he could gift one because normally that would be quite an expensive or difficult thing to part with. So I think it is, it was for me a real eye-opener of just how, how big a, a, a leap we have to do in terms of professionalizing civil society, but also of really really having the conversation about what liberation means and how you, how you achieve it. Um, and I, I'll, I'm sure I, this is the problem of having me moderators. I'm really not very good at moderating. I just talk. Um, but I'll, I'll hand over to Ian, please, so I can stop talking.
3: Good evening to you all. Uh, Elham is a very persuasive person. Uh, and I have great respect for the work that she and her colleagues uh, do. Uh, And only that, I think, could have persuaded me as a completely uh, non-creative person to be willing to be here with two extraordinary creative talents, uh, Hisham and uh, and George. Um, uh, But already uh, there's inspiration to be found in some of the reminders uh, of uh, the strengths there are in Libya uh, amidst uh, a grim situation. Elham asked me to talk about international actors, and that's, I'm afraid, talking about Human rights violators, more than it's talking about human rights. Um, I'm going to go in with Haiti. Uh, That may not be obvious, but um, just before I left Libya in 2012, I went with uh, a person who had been a close colleague of mine in my UN office, who was from Haiti, to Haiti Street in Tripoli and took a photograph of her underneath the sign of Haiti Street. Now, why do you think there's a Haiti Street in Tripoli? There aren't streets named after a lot of different countries. The answer is, at the end of the Second World War, the Allies had a lot of trouble agreeing what to do about the former Italian colony. Uh, and they couldn't agree about Libya at all, and they eventually they threw the decision into the General Assembly of the very young United Nations. And Britain and Italy, the former colonial power, put together a proposal that they would split Libya into two trusteeships, the British, who already the military occupation, uh, uh, would be a trustee in uh, the, the East, and the Italians would return to Tripoli and the West. A lot of Libyans hated that idea, uh, and they succeeded in resisting this. And when it came to a vote in the General Assembly, the uh, British-Italian scheme was rejected by one vote. And the key vote was Haiti, which defected from the other uh, Latin American countries. Um, and that's why there's a Haiti street, and it just happens that uh, my colleague uh, was the granddaughter of the permanent representative of Haiti who cast that vote uh, and lost his job uh, at the United <laughs> Nations uh, for his government as a, as a result. Um, well, I think an important part of understanding uh, both the past and the present of Libya is looking at the external involvement. Uh, Today, Libya is being torn apart uh, by Libyan factions, of course, but with the encouragement of different international actors. And external actors in Libya's history left it with almost none of the institutions of a state, uh, as Hisham has has described. Uh, I took Elham's advice, and I'm grateful that I did, to listen to George's uh, podcast, where he says he'll say it better, the West has sown some bad seeds on the continent, right? Um, Well, today it's not only the West that are sowing bad seeds uh, in in Libya and elsewhere. Before Libya was a unified country, it was three provinces of the Ottoman Empire. It became Libya for the first time under Italian colonialism and an extremely brutal colonialism uh, for much of the period colonialism of Mussolini's uh, Italy. It became a battleground in the Second World War with the British and the Americans driving the Italians and the Germans one way and then back again, leaving Libya at the end of that war uh, under military occupation of Britain and France. Uh, After Haiti helped defeat the trusteeship proposal the United Nations General Assembly established a commission which negotiated a constitution, uh, the first constitution uh, under which King Idris uh, uh, became the the King of a, of a United Libya, but presided over an extremely weak monarchy. Libya had been left with nothing except like scrap metal and two military bases, one American and one one British, as an income until the discovery of that oil and. He was so right to see that the discovery of oil is a mixed blessing, and Libya is not the only uh, case that tells us that. Uh, that that today, so in 1969, Idris was overthrown by Gaddafi, uh, and led to the 40 years of uh, Gaddafi's dictatorship. And there's no better way of sensing the atmosphere of that dictatorship than uh, reading Hisham's uh, first uh, novel. So, no institution building not under the Ottomans, not under Italian colonialism, not under military occupation, not under a weak monarchy, not under 40 years of a dictator who consciously opposed the building of any of the institutions of a modern modern state. When events which began in 2011 with the uprising are referred to today, there are usually one of let's say three conventional wisdoms, uh, all of which I find myself disagreeing with. The first is, the West shouldn't have decided to get rid of Gaddafi. The West didn't decide to get rid of Gaddafi. The West was perfectly comfortable with Gaddafi. Tony Blair wanted a photo op in his tent. MI6 were thanking uh, his regime for cooperating with rendition. Uh, of people back to be tortured in in Libya. Sarkozy is still being investigated for the charge that he took funds for his elections from Gaddafi. Berlusconi, Prodi, they were all perfectly happy with Gaddafi. The West didn't understand, didn't decide to overthrow Gaddafi. The majority of Libyans decided to overthrow Gaddafi. The West then intervened when Gaddafi was... Violently repressing the beginnings of that uprising, and specifically uh, when uh, uh, militias under his son were advancing on Benghazi, none of us can say exactly what would have happened if they'd got the Benghazi. But I think something very nasty would have happened in Benghazi. So I say that not to justify the whole of what uh, NATO did in uh, uh, in in 2011,
4: uh,
3: because. There's a criticism I do very much agree with, that that operation which was mandated by the United Nations Security Council to protect civilians became an operation to uh, bring about a violent end through regime change. Uh, And we shall never know if the UK and France, as leading interveners and the others, uh, had instead genuinely sought a mediated outcome, and the African Union, which had influence with Gaddafi, had put pressure on whether there could have been a peaceful outcome. Maybe not, but we shall never know, but that's not what what happened. The second conventional wisdom I'll put in the mouth of uh, uh, a man I respect, uh, Barack Obama, uh, who said his worst mistake was not to plan for the day after in Libya. Well the implication that comes from that, the people who take that point of view, think that there should have been a big international peacekeeping operation, stabilization mission, they call it, uh, these days. It, there's one thing that Libyans didn't want in 2011, it was boots on the ground. They had seen what had happened in Iraq, seen what had happened in Afghanistan, uh, and were wholly resistant to the idea that there would be uh, a, an international military presence. That's not to say that the international actors couldn't have done more. And in, in my view, one of the responsibilities is that those who built up the different armed groups, the different militias, whether that was the UK, France, Italy, UAE, Qatar, um, uh, should have used their influence to uh, seek to get them to hand their Kalashnikovs over to Elhan. Um, uh, but that's not what what happened. They largely turned away. The the third uh, uh, conventional wisdom is that the international community shouldn't have rushed to hold elections. The international community didn't rush to hold elections. Libyans rushed to hold elections, precisely because Gaddafi had denied them real elections for so long. There was an extraordinary determination to hold elections, and Libyans went ahead in Misrata and Benghazi without any international assistance to to do that and insisted that they were going to hold early elections. And I actually don't think they were wrong either, because the militias were not going to disarm unless and until they saw a government which they had uh, uh, had, had helped uh, elect. Uh, but alas, the elections that were held surprisingly successfully in, in 2012 in a surprisingly optimistic mood, despite a lot of security problems, uh, didn't become the basis for an effective government. And before long, Libya slipped into a division between rival governments backed by rival armed groups. So for several years since then, uh, the UN has tried to help Libyans to agree on a single power-sharing government. Uh, we won't, There's no point tonight in going through that, that history. The most recent effort was to culminate in a national conference in the middle of uh, April. Uh, On the 3rd of April, the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, uh, landed in Tripoli to go and talk to Prime Minister Siraj in the west and General Haftar in the east uh, about reaching agreement at that national conference. Uh, But that was the moment at which uh, Khalifa Haftar chose to plunge Libya into still greater violence uh, by the attack that he launched on uh, on Tripoli, uh, and that's where we are today. But he would not have done that had he not been built up in recent years, particularly by the United Arab Emirates, by Egypt, with France playing a very ambiguous role, saying one thing in the Security Council but often doing another uh, uh, on the ground. Uh, now that full-scale fighting is on, uh, there's assistance uh, uh, going the other way from Turkey, uh, perhaps from, from, from Qatar. Uh, and I'll just give you one quote from Hassan Salami, who's the UN Special Representative uh, in, in Libya today, when he briefed the Security Council just the other day. He said, the violence on the outskirts of Tripoli is just the start of a long and bloody war on the southern shores of the Mediterranean, imperiling the security of Libya's immediate neighbors and the wider Mediterranean region. So what is to be done? The UK was a major player in 2011, as in so many other things. The UK isn't really a major player today, um, but it is not without some influence, uh, and it also has some extremely dubious alliances with the Gulf states, uh, which particularly in the relation to the UAE uh, are uh, playing a major role in the in the current situation. And while we're talking about our own uh, responsibility, um, we might uh, uh, turn towards the Home Office as well, because uh, uh, the, the Home Office has gone from bad to worse in the way that it treats people, uh, and all of us here have a responsibility to insist that that, I mean, I would argue, support the cause for an international inquiry into the state of the Home Office, because uh, <laughs> the reasons for that have been building up so uh, so so strongly. Um, but, like Hisham, I'd like to end uh, um, not only by recalling the extraordinary civic activism that there was uh, during the uprising, uh, when people stepped forward to run their own towns in the absence of any of any state or any security forces, uh, when civil society organisations came into existence, some of the best work that the mission I headed was able to do in 2011 and 2012 was trying to assist. That's the kind of work that uh, lawyers for justice in Libya continue today. Uh, and let's also not lose hope. Let's let's watch what has gone on in Sudan. Let's watch what's just gone on in Hong Kong. Nobody's paying much attention to Algeria, but that too is another extraordinary example of where people, when they're not subject to external interference, uh, are determined to take a say in building a different future in their countries. And while in Sudan that's been set back by the very same kind of external involvement as is... uh, 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 as is poisoning Libya today, um, the story is not over in Sudan. I think because one thing that people in those situations seem to have learnt from uh, uh, from 2011 is you is you don't give up at your first defeat. You you sustain the uh, the momentum. Um, so, like I I'll end by uh, asking for your solidarity with lawyers for justice in in Libya. Uh, as well as for all of us who are u k citizens to think about what our responsibility is towards the role our government is playing.
0: Thank you so much. i um, I have so so many so many things to comment on, but i will I'll restrain myself. Um, I'm going to read. Um, Rawia's intervention, uh, who, like I said, she was meant to be here if the Home Office had taken a more um, humanitarian approach to her visa request. Um, I've read it once before, and it it is a little bit of emotional, so I'll try to get through it. Um, good evening. Thank you for coming this evening to attend this event. I'm Rawia Hamza from Tripoli, Libya, and I was due to be with you this evening and was so looking forward to it. It would have been an honor to share the stage with Mr. Matar and Mr. Martin and to Witness George in action. Unfortunately, the war in my country and the UK visa system has made that impossible. I'm not with you this evening because I'm guilty of being Libyan, where the internal situation is suffocating and the external is unforgiving. I would like to thank lawyers for justice in Libya for ensuring that my voice, carrying the voices of the innocent victims of this war, reaches you this evening. Today is the 76th day of the renewed fighting. It is the 76th day of, of fighting in the midst of civilians. It is the 76th day of renewed displacement, of destruction, of grave human rights violations, and of bloodshed. So far, we have seen the use of heavy artillery and air raids on largely civilian areas. The most recent air raid was on the 15th of June and was targeting an armed groups camp, which also happened to be opposite the cardiac hospital in Tajura in eastern Tripoli. Eyewitnesses with whom I spoke expressed that the attack resulted in heavy explosions because the targeted camp had a big arsenal of weapons and that the explosion resulted in damage to the hospital, including the collapse of the ceiling in several places. There were also accidents reported um, as the hospitals on a main road and the explosions caused drivers on that road to panic and some drove into opposite opposite lanes. These 76 days have resulted in over 90,000 internally displaced persons, many of whom are now living in unsuitable accommodation. This number represents around 12,000 families we sometimes become numb to numbers, but with each family that I have met, I have heard heartbreaking stories. I interviewed a man who returned to check on his home and collect some items his family needed. I will not delve into the details of his journey through the streets of Tripoli to get to his home, but I will take a moment to tell you what he found in his home when he arrived. He found that many of his belongings had been stolen and then, and then found some very private pictures of his daughters had been hanged on the walls around the home and above mattresses that had been moved to put underneath the pictures. He told me that in a panic rush, he peeled off all the photos and then took them to the bathroom to to burn them. When I asked him why the bathroom, he said that he was terrified to do that in a room where there were big windows as the smoke coming out of the windows might result in his house being targeted. I also met a 43 year old man who was displaced in April. When the fighting quietened down a bit in May, he returned to check on his home. He was was surprised that all the air conditioning was running on full power. When he started checking the rooms for possible new residents, he found one room that was full of corpses. Realising that his home had been turned into a makeshift morgue, he left his home mortified and shocked. These 76 days have also resulted in the death of nearly 700 people, 41 41 of whom are civilian, and the injury of over 4,000 people, 135 of whom are civilian. Again, these numbers don't translate the reality of the horrors people are living, as do the stories I have heard from people I have interviewed. I remember the story of a mother who had banned her teenage boy from leaving the house for a month, fearing for his safety. When fighting paused slightly and comforted by the month of Ramadan, she allowed him him to go out for an afternoon with a friend. He did not come home alive. Instead, she received his body after he was targeted by a sniper. He was 16 years old. In addition to these numbers, here is another number worth thinking about, 15 hours. This is how long power cuts are lasting in Tripoli these days, with temperatures currently reaching the 40s. Imagine 15-hour power cuts and what that does to hospitals, food storage, and the like. It has also had a horrible effect on division between the people in Tripoli, with only the wealthy being able to afford power generators. Even our war is no longer democratic. I also want to talk about education. Most schools schools were suspended um, until earlier this month. Although some have started again, they are with reduced staff as many teachers have been displaced. Others remain indefinitely closed. And of course, all those families that have been displaced have no access to education. This has been a forgotten story of the last eight years where many have had limited access or no access to education. I often wonder what will happen to all those who have lost out on education. What routes to change will they be tempted by? I might share one last story. Last week, my family and I decided to leave Tripoli for a break in the beautiful coastal town of Koms, which is far from the fighting. We were having tea in the evening, and then we all jumped and panicked as we all heard what we believed was the firing of weapons. It took us a while to realize that we were, what we were actually hearing was the crashing of waves. It was then that I realized that even those of us who have escaped physical harm have been damaged in other ways. I went to end my intervention on a note of hope because despite all of this, Libya remains a beautiful country with many people who believe that we deserve better. And so I'm hopeful that this evening we have made new friends and that we will also see Libya that is based on justice, social, economic, and legal, and that all of this will not have been in vain. Hope and commitment will get us through this, and thankfully we have lots of both. Thank you for listening, and I'm sorry that I'm not here to thank you in person. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. We have one final treat for you, which saw our audience at The Conduit in tears with lots of smiles and with a genuine sense of reflection. It's a live performance by George the Poet, an activist and spoken word performer whose podcast, Have You Heard George's Podcast, recently won an unprecedented five gold awards, including Podcast of the Year at the British Podcast Awards, We Can Only Dream. George the Poet is a supporter of Lawyers for Justice in Libya and included a powerful episode on the condition of migrants in Libya, featuring us in his podcast. After you listen to this little nugget from the event, make sure you go to his incredible podcast, but start with episode seven.
4: Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for the very insightful contributions and the very thoughtful questions. I was reminded of so many key turning points in my thinking on hearing the conversation tonight. A key one, I suppose, came earlier this year when Elham invited me to Lawyers, Lawyer for, Just, Lawyers for Justice's um, inaugural lecture... What would Justice lecture, right? And the topic of conversation was trans- transitional justice, if I'm right. These are all phrases I'm new to. I didn't study any of this. Um but I remember hearing something that really affected me. I I, I uh the the speaker was Pablo Pablo de Grief. I can't remember what his role is, but he's a it's too long. He's the UN special rapporteur on basically transitional justice. Okay. <laughs> that guy said that um, when you have a failed state in which there is no secu- there is no um, assurances in terms of security, development, and another third element, I think it was, uh, justice is just a non-starter of a conversation. That is not getting off the ground in any way. Um, that was a turning point in my thinking. The mention of uh, Libya in the 80s was also... It really moved me because it made me think of what drove my parents to leave our home country of Uganda and settle here. Effectively, terror. Terror uh, of a national scale in the face of statelessness. And that word has just resonated in so many different corners of my life. See, Back in the eighties, Uganda was crazy. Guns and poverty like you won't believe. My parents chose to leave in search of a new day. So they came to work in the UK. Now, they never had to gamble with their life on a boat. They never found themselves with a knife to their throat. They never had to give money to a trafficker just to make it out of Africa. And when they got here, they weren't met with a hostile government. My parents felt like they hadn't lost out other than the distance from all of their brothers and their sisters. And they would have happily stayed, but you know, sacrifices had to be made. See, they were running from instability. Never underestimate the part this actively played. At the time, They were massively swayed by the danger they'd seen in the day-to-day scheme of a change of regime. So they were happy to find work, glad to be paid. But when you think about how strange it may seem to leave your country without a penny to your name, consider the fact that, as has been mentioned, 30-something years later, so many do the same. So back in November 2017, I saw a story on the news that affected the world in a way I've only ever seen in very few situations. Africans were being sold as slaves, tortured for ransom, thrown in graves without so much as a stone engraved. Everyone on social media was so engaged and so enraged. All of a sudden I saw a million posts about migrants running for the Libyan coast getting trapped in the country, raped, beaten, and kidnapped on a monthly. Social media support is the form of low-risk protest we can afford when we want to show solidarity from abroad. It's a godsend for people that are being ignored. Obviously, it was a factor in the Arab Spring, in Libya, Western-backed rebels galloped in challenging Gaddafi, who was taken down after 42 years and now he ain't around. But online activity operates within limits. Is writing long captions and spitting lyrics equivalent to hospital and prison visits? I mean, it isn't, is it? Still, what are we supposed to do? We reach for the circles of influence we're closest to, but the least we could do is post a poster to. I mean, tens of millions, families, friends, civilians, born on the wrong side of history, all running from lives of misery and loss of order, trying to cross a border with soldiers told to detain them on site in Tripoli. The story was broken by award-winning journalist Naam el a young Sudanese woman, pulled off an investigation police couldn't. Fluent in English and Arabic, she went to Libya, moved with caution, and came back with evidence of human auctions. She presented it on CNN, the story bust, of course, as the benefits of being known as a trusted source. And so, into the public discourse, This discovery was thrust with force. People talked about Libya, discussed its flaws, discussed all the ways in which it shuts its doors to the outside. Basically, we took a look at the situation and had a long, disgusted pause. And that was it. The story never stuck around for too long. The news cycle moved on. Over here, we'd been dealing with Brexit. Every other day, another lever regrets it. And with the president engaged in beef with intelligence agencies, no one expected much from Americans, basically. Mugabe was overthrown, and it was just another notification on my mobile phone. Now, from the UK, across the Mediterranean, Libya's... like 2,200 miles away. But across the Atlantic, America's over 4,000 miles away. So clearly, closeness doesn't equal concern. If they're not ours, we're leaving people to burn. And the West has sown some bad seeds on the continent. Can't let this evil return. Yet the tone of indignation around immigration, both in the US and in this nation, shows how little history we all learn. And every single day, This planet covers 24,912 miles each full turn. 1.6 million miles around the sun, so the speed of life alone drowns out the sound of guns. The sound of Western governments dishing out the funds to Libyan militias, even when their hold on a city is pernicious. Whoever can help us keep those Africans off the coast and back in Africa will support the wildest bunch. It's easier than having to absorb a thousand hungry migrants and scapegoating them for violence in order to deport them out the country. It's more cost-effective. It's easier than admitting we've all lost perspective. Now on top of that, Libya harbours a dark secret. Widespread contempt for black skin, causing limited racial interaction. That's created a space, created an underworld that is easy for migrants and refugees to be trapped in. They just want to make it to Europe. And the Libyan coastline is their closest point. If they can't, maybe they'll send their oldest boy. The risk is better than settling so destroyed. There's no hope in stagnation. So at least in their imagination, they can see just one of them surviving that Mediterranean Sea. But something happens over that Mediterranean. You go from being someone's baby to an immigrant, alien. Arrive at a country with people hating you, even though your situation was never explained to them. We've seen a rise in migrants being demonized and silenced, being penalized, violently illegalized for feeling like there might be a life free of strife. Where we reside only to come and realize they have no equal rights in european eyes that's the end of the line when neighboring governments ain't spending a dime when you're everyone's problem but no one's responsibility so we can't hold anyone accountable for the fact your life is unaccounted for No national insurance, no bank accounts. It's like censorship, I swear. They just blank it out. No one wants you here, fam. Get out. And if the sea of angry faces ain't making this clear, well, there's always Operation Sophia. You guys remember Operation Sophia? Formerly the European Naval Force Mediterranean, targeting trafficking in an effort to rein it in. See, after the migrant shipwrecks of 2015, things were never the same again. The focus shifted to tackling smugglers, as opposed to fashioning something with African governments. And do you know what happened because of this? Nothing did. No migrant lives were saved. The House of Lords issued a statement, literally stating that instead of changing this situation, this operation kind of drives the wave. There's more people taking a chance, off the coastline hoping they can advance, might make it to Spain, might make it to France, but if not, you're stuck at this pit stop with this lot and you will only exist in a lonely abyss with malicious militias and neo-colonialists. Scared in an open space but wearing a poker face out there in a broken place where evil himself caught a cold. You see for yourself bought and sold African bodies, ransom and slavery, traffickers' hobbies. And the last thing in your control was your non-existence. Now that mirage that you saw from a distance turns out to be the solid vision of a supposedly abolished system after crossing that Sahara Desert. A torrid mission. You're in a squalid prison. Horrid isn't the word, this is absurd. You came in search of freedom, but you're raped and cursed and beaten. All because your non-existence enables your African neighbor to commodify your body and trap it in labor. That very non-existence slips the mind of so many politicians the ones who declared that the region was stable, invited you to come and take your seat at the table. You've been on a quest to make it to the coastline ever since those Western nations gave the coastline. So you, you paid smugglers thousands of pounds, left town, told yourself if you drowned, then you drowned. That's your business. And after all of this, what you found in Libya was lawlessness, a makeshift nation. A place abandoned. It's not what you heard from Obama or David Cameron. About a country on its way to democracy. What you see is a failing economy. With no single prevailing authority. Just gangsters in a state of autonomy. Who stand to gain if you can be used for trade. To keep you at bay. That's who the EU have paid. They treat you this way because they need you afraid. They can charge your family double the fee you have paid. On the basis of fear. But another way to pay the fee is straight up slavery. And there's a market for that because of racism here. How do you make this trade disappear? These guys have arrangements with Italy to catch migrants and detain them in Tripoli under Operation Sophia. Some people say your smugglers are working under the cover of government. Providing a security supplement essential to power. And because of shared interests, they're friends for the hour. But the friendship has the potential to sour if, for example, the government gives in to international calls to apprehend them. That alliance would have to end then. I wrote this in 2018, things have developed. But what happens in that event then? When your struggle outlasts our attention spans and we go back to funding our cars and our pension plans, Libya's government has 34 detention camps and the UN can't access half of them. Even if they could, what happens after them? Will they be sending the troops in? And if they do, will there be an end to the shooting? Who's going to contact your family? How do you combat insanity? How do you even come back from that reality? Companionship is a form of leadership. And we're all in need of it. We're all we've got. If your family or friends were caught in this, could you switch that story off? Surely not. Entertainers and the arts can end the failures of the past if artists become advocates and audiences become activists. Everything I do comes back to this. In life, that's what my next chapter is. Now, if you can take all that information that we just threw at you, imagine what else we can do. Any emotion you felt listening to me, it's time to put, start pursuing it. This is what you do with it: support the people on the justice front line, even if it's just this one time. I want to leave you with this passing thought: as a young Ugandan. I love my country, I was born and raised over here, but I have hopes of going back over there. Uganda, being situated in the heart of East Africa, is a region that is no stranger to coups, no stranger to civil unrest, but for 33 years, we've been under one leader in relative quiescence. I say The events of Libya prompted me to write this, because they so profoundly disturbed my prospects in Uganda, given that we've had this dictator for so long, given that Mugabe's been ousted, Bashir was ousted to the north of us in Sudan. All of these changes happening on the continent are very real, very immediate. And it was an honor, a relief for me to connect with the charity that is so intelligently and doggedly challenging the status quo. So please, support the people on the justice front line, even if it's this one time. Thank you very much for listening. God bless.
0: Why support LFJL?
3: Well, an important part of the future of Libya is the call for justice, uh, building the rule of law uh, and also insisting that uh, you can't build the rule of law without accountability for the worst crimes of the past. Uh, And so for lawyers for justice in Libya to continue making that case and working in difficult and dangerous circumstances in Libya is, is very important.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help us get discovered and keep growing. If you'd like to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please let us know on our Facebook page, Libya Matters, or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. This was a special episode from an event at The Conduit in London. We are grateful to our guests, Hisham Matar, Ian Martin, Rawia Hamza, and George the Poet. It was hosted by me, Ilham Saudi. It was produced by Tara Kalmiri. Sound recording was by Alan O'Duffy, Mark Andrews, and Eleanor Russell. The people who put it all together are Caitlin McLaren, Linda Batumi, Elise Fletcher, Inesh Maximiano, Marwa Mohammed, and me, Ilham Saudi. Our interns are Marian Sozi and May Thompson. Special thanks to Nadir El-Gadi and Paul Carter. And of course, to the whole team at The Conduit, especially Paul Van Sale and Emmanuel Bomo, for hosting us so generously. Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with international media support, IMS.